You are about to watch Open Mic with Kevin Dietz and Mike Morse. We have Ken Wanenko on today and Judge Carl Marlinga talking about one of the most fascinating cases I have ever read about, watched about in almost 30 years of being a lawyer. You are not going to want to miss this episode. Uh, Kenny spent nine years in prison for a rape and burglary he did not commit. He alleges judge misconduct, prosecu prosecutor misconduct. He alleges police misconduct. He was awarded over almost $4 million for what happened to him, among other things. You're not going to believe his story. It's right out of the pages of, uh, of a fiction book or a fiction movie. Um, but unfortunately for Ken, it was all too real. So stay tuned for an episode you're not going to want to miss. Joining us this morning is Mike Morse and Corey's Top Dirty. Mike Morse. Mike Morse is in here to tell us about the backpack giveaway. Adapt and adapt and change things up a little bit every year. Welcome to another episode of Open Mic, another home edition, another long hair edition. Uh, today we have a really interesting episode, Kevin, uh, but first, thanks for being here. How are you and your family holding up? We're doing good. It looks like Michigan's starting to open up a little bit, at least up, up north it is a little bit, uh, so hopefully we're headed down that road to get back to a little more normalcy, but we're, we're doing well and uh, uh, can't complain, uh, you know, just working our way through it. It's nice to see the weather break. It is, it is. Well, you helped put together a fascinating episode today that I'm really looking forward to talking to our two guests. First is Ken Wynemko, who served nine years in prison for a rape and robbery he did not commit. There has been a book written about him and a movie uh, done by Netflix called the, uh, On the Innocence Files. It's actually not a movie, it's a uh, episode in one of their series that I just watched today fascinating i recommend it to everybody and the other interesting part uh, of this story is that we have judge carl marlinga who was the prosecutor at the time of this conviction who has now become a supporter of of ken and he was in the courtroom when he was released and the fact you know you're not going to hear many bad things about uh, Judge Marlinga, Prosecutor Marlinga. Um, he's always been this level-headed, fair guy. As long as I've known him, as long as I've read about him in the paper, I've never had a case in front of him. But um, from all accounts, I'm not surprised by what I witnessed in this movie or TV show. And I'm excited to talk to them both. So without further ado, let's bring on Ken Wynemko and Carl Marlinga. Hey guys. Hi. Hi. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Mike. Thank you for having uh, invited Carl and myself. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm, yeah, same uh, here. I, I, I really, I'm not going to lie. I didn't know all the details about your story, Ken. I, I saw some headlines over the last 30 years now, uh, but I didn't, I didn't dive in. I didn't know much about it until really in the last few days. And I can't, tell you how blown away I am. Um, your story and everything you've been through. I mean, my heart, the emotions that go through watching uh, shows like this TV show that you uh, participated in uh, on Netflix, The Innocence Files. Um, I am so sorry 
as a lawyer, as a person, as a father, uh, as just a, a citizen of the United States that this happened to you. I, I just can't believe uh, the story. So let me just start by saying that. Well, thank you, Kevin. I It means a lot I'm to Mike, me. I'm Mike. That's Kevin over there. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You know. I'm, uh, thank you, Mike. I'm, uh, you know, I'm thrilled that you feel that way. And I, I only hope, wish or pray rather, that every attorney, every human being had the same attitude that you have, that you just expressed. Because you know, it's sad to say cases like mine are coming to light more and more often, you know, and uh, it's time to, for, for the people to wake up and help stop these wrongful convictions. And it's possible. I believe it's possible. We all can work together. You know, I've been doing this now for, um, it's hard to believe, next next month will be my 17th anniversary that I'm home. Wow. I can't, uh, can you believe that, Carl? 17 years. I, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I'll tell you what, guys, I am so proud to be part of the Innocence Project, the Innocence Movement, and I'm honored to meet, I've met so many good people, Carl, is one of one of the most uh, respected people I've met, uh, you know, since I've been home, and I would not want to be doing anything else. Um, you know, I'm happy doing what I'm doing now, to getting the word out, help, helping work on cases through the Cooley Law School and through U of M to help free other innocent men and women because there are far, far, far too many people still in prison to this day. Well, I definitely want to get into what you're doing now, Ken, but I think I want to dig into your, I want to dig into some of the, some of the amazing facts that, that, that led to the miscarriage of justice in your case. But I also want to try to ask some questions of things that weren't in the documentary, um, questions that people may have, questions that I have as an attorney and because there's a couple glaring things that that weren't mentioned in several of the articles that I've read as well as the series. So, you know, let's let's dive in. Uh, Carl will, or Judge Marlingo will get to you soon um, because, you know, we, we did uh, we did a show uh, on Aaron Salter and how Kim Worthy really stepped up to the plate and and set up this innocence project in Wayne County, which I can't. You know, it, it's 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 such an amazing thing that that they have somebody in her office watching these files. And I want to talk to you about it. You know, is there any any plans for that in, in Macomb County? And I want to get into all that. But but Ken, let's start with you. Um, and I want to you know, you grew up in Macomb. You grew up in Michigan your whole life. I was born and raised in Detroit. I went to uh, Catholic school for 12 years for, you know, my I was fortunate enough, my brothers and I were fortunate enough to go to Catholic school for 12 years. I lived in Detroit until I was um, 37 years old. And I moved to Warren and um, uh, in Macomb County. And then that's why I was arrested in 1994. And uh, after my release, I, I live in, in Oakland County now. But- um, yeah, Got out of Macomb County. Yeah, and you know, it still bothers me to this day but I took the advice of my attorneys during the course of my civil suit, uh, George Gagin and Tom Howlett, um, two other men that I, I have the utmost respect for, and as well as Gail Pamikoff, 
who is now my personal attorney, um, you know, they said, you know, Kenny, don't even think about when I was looking for a house, they said, don't even consider buying a house in Macomb County because they were afraid that the, you know, the animosity between Clinton Township Police and myself, because basically they, they got caught, you know, um, we all know, we all know what they, go ahead. For our viewers, our viewers don't really know your story, Kenny. A lot of people are going to be seeing this for the first time. So, so I think we should, I think we should kind of go back to the beginning. But, Judge, just as a little bit of setup before Kenny starts from the beginning here, um, we, when we all know that a wrongful conviction is one of the biggest breakdowns in the justice system. When you look at his case, where would you rate that? What kind of rating would you give that on the justice system going afoul, breaking down? Um, what would you say? Uh, how 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 bad was Kenny's situation, or how bad was the justice system for Kenny uh, before he shares a story? Okay, any time that an innocent person is convicted, it's obviously at the top of the charts. It's a tragedy. It's it's the worst possible thing. But in terms of the contributing factors. Uh, so many things went wrong uh, in this case, and the the nature of the case itself, how a person can be convicted of some crimes and not have the same moral stigma. This is a rape. This is a brutal rape. Uh, this is something that I would rank near the top. I mean, the only thing that could possibly top it is being on death row uh, for a murder you did not commit. Uh, but this is one of the worst cases ever, I would I would clearly say. And, and one thing that I want to say, Kevin, and to our viewers, hearing uh, Judge Marlinga say that it is, you know, he was the elected prosecutor when this happened. And the fact that the second he learned about new evidence, he said, yes, test it. The second that the state police called and said, you have the wrong man, he was released. And the fact that he's sitting here today, friends with this person, Kenny Wynenko, is just goes to his character. This isn't about him, but uh, it's just, it's admirable because you heard uh, Prosecutor Davis that I'm sure we're going to talk about deny everything and say that, you know, she was still happy with the conviction or still believe that he should be convicted, which you just want to poke yourself in the eyeballs when you hear her talk. And I, I it just, it's just so refreshing, Judge, to hear you, to, to, he, to see and hear everything you've done for him um, and, and the ethics that you hold and you've always held, I, it just blows me away because, you know, most people run away when there's a problem in their office, especially when you're the boss and you haven't done that in this case. And it's so all I, can say is, all I can say is thank you, but look, at it's the right thing to do. You always have to do the right thing. You can't hesitate. Um, but, but, but thanks for saying that, but, uh, really in my mind, it's, it's a no brainer. You got to do what you got to do. So. Mike, Mike, you hit the nail right on the head when you uh, said those kind words to Carl. I and I agree, one hundred percent. I wish there were more more Carl Marlingas in the world in in our in our legal system, because the justice system would be administered a lot better than it is today. Believe me. Okay, but enough about me. We got to get to your story because Mike's right. There are people who don't know the story, and so you start. Uh, so can can. Ken, before you start exactly on this happened, before you were um, accused of this rape, you were working as a uh, working in a bowling alley as a manager. 
That's correct. I I worked after I graduated from high school. I started my tool and die apprenticeship at General Motors. I worked there for 15 years with my dad and my two brothers. And I was married and my father-in-law owned a bowling center and a nightclub in Detroit, Geno's Falcon Show Bar. And I I preferred the, um, I'll say GM was my second choice as a career. So I decided to go into the bowling business and I was managing a pair of centers in Macomb County. And the way this whole thing started, there's only one logical answer why the, why the police came after me. Um, it was back in February, 94, or, uh, 94, uh, it was a Friday night. We have, we have a, a family night at the bowling center where parents bring their children in and the place was jammed, which it always was on a family night. And I was sitting in my office, putting together a liquor order and Kelly, who was one of my waitresses came in the office and, and she said, Kenny, there's a guy out there on lane 12 that's bowling by himself. And uh, she thought there was going to be a fight between the father and mother on lane 11 and this guy. And she said the guy was, she thought the guy was drunk. And she also said that she noticed he had a can of Miller Lite. He pulled a can of Miller Lite out of, of a bowling bag. Okay. So I said, okay, I'll take a look at it. And anytime a situation like that arises, um, I, you know, I, I take my time to observe the situation, which is what I did. I walked out of the office and I, I folded my arms like this and I was leaning against the counter watching what was going on in lane 12. And sure enough, I saw this guy. I thought, I'm surprised the guy in lane 11 didn't punch this guy. Okay. And I told Terry, who was working the counter then, and I said, you know, watch my, watch my back. I'm going to go down to lane 12 and I'm going to tell this guy's time for him to leave. So that's what I did. I went down and uh, I asked him what his name was. And they said his name was John. And he had two bowling bags, one with uh, two bowling balls in it. He had the second bag he hit was filled with cans of Miller Lite. Okay. So I asked him, I, you know, both these bowling bags belong to him. And he said, yes, they do. I said, he said, what's the problem? Oh, then he said, uh, well, why do you want to know? Who are you? I said, my name's Ken Renumka. I'm the manager of this place. He said, no, go ahead and look, you know, you can look in the bag if you want. So I would look, uh, opened up the second bag and he had 11 cans of Miller Lite in his bag. Okay. And he had a, he rented a pair of bowling shoes. He didn't have his own bowling shoes. So I told him, I said, John, I said, do yourself a favor. I said, take your shoes off, go up to the counter, pay your bill because you're all done bowling for tonight. You have to leave. And I Went to I, I went to reach for his, the bag with the cans of beer in it, and he said, "Hey, he said, what, you know, what, what do you think going with that?" I said, "I'm taking this with me." I said, "You know, you can't. It's against the law to bring in alcohol into an establishment that has a liquor license. You're putting my my license in jeopardy." And he says, "Well, no, you can't, you can't do that. You know, you can't. I can't take his you know his beer." I said, "I, I look. I've been in a bowling business for thirty years. I know what I what I can and what I can't do." Okay, so I um. I told him once again, I said, take your shoes off, go up to the counter and pay your bill. And I went back into the office. So he came in the office and uh, he said, he's got, he got kind of loud. His name is John, a Polish guy. Um, and uh, he wanted his beer, his beer back. I said, look it. I said, I, can, I know that you're drunk. I can tell you had too much to drink. I said, come back and talk to me tomorrow. I'm right in the middle of this big order. And I don't really don't want to, I hate to argue with people. 
So he said he's not leaving until he gets his beer back. I said, look at John. I said, number one, and I can't throw him out. I said, and he wanted to know why I, I thought I could throw him out. I said, first of all, you can't bring beer into my establishment. I already told you that. And he reached in his pocket and he pulled out a, a badge, a Clinton Township Police badge, and he showed it to me. He said, I'm a, I'm a Clinton Township Police officer. And I said, look, it. I said, I don't, number one, I don't know if that badge is, is real or not, but if it is real, then you should know better as a police officer. You can't bring alcohol into, into a establishment that has a liquor license. And he went to reach for the bag. He said, I'm, you know, I want my beer. I'm not going. To, and I said, John, I said, take your hands off the bag because you are leaving. And if you don't, if you don't want to walk out by yourself, I'll throw you out. Okay. I, I, I met, I admit saying that all along. So, um, he said, he told me, he, I can't throw him out. So I, I got up from behind the desk, I got him in a headlock, and he was still holding on to one bag, the bowling bag with the bowling balls in it, okay? And I started to drag him to the, towards the front door. I dragged him in front of the counter, and there's a double, double glass doors going out into the parking lot. The, the bowling center's on Gros, I mean, Grosbeck and M59. And as I was dragging him out the front door, he took the bag with the bowling bag with his balls in it, and he, he smashed one of the glass doors, okay? So I got it. I dragged him outside, pushed him down on the ground. I said, "Come back and see me tomorrow." Okay. So I, I came back inside. I got uh, Scott, who was what one of my porters that night. I told him to clean up the glass, and I went back inside the office to go, get back to work on my on my liquor order. So about twenty minutes later, Terry came in. He says, "Kenny, there's two uh, uniform officers here. Want to talk to you?" I said, "Send them in." Okay. So they came in the office, and uh, they they asked me. If my name was Kenny, I said yes, and they said, "I said, what's the problem?" And they said uh, that they got a call that that I had a problem here about a half hour ago, and I said I didn't have any problem. And he said, "Well, I noticed one of your porters, one of the uh, porters, is sweeping a broken glass in the front door, you know, because he didn't want to know what happened." And I said, "Well, I had a customer that didn't want to listen to me, brought beer into my place, and he didn't want to leave, so I threw him out." And his partner says, "I thought you said you didn't have a problem." I said, I didn't have a problem. He had a problem because he didn't take my advice. It's, it's as simple as that. So one guy, one cop kept on talking to me. The other one stepped outside the office door. He's looking all, look at all the people bowling. And the bar was packed that night. So um, the guy came back in and he wanted to know if my liquor license was up to date. I said, yes, it is. He said, where's it at? I said, it's displayed on the back wall behind that bar. Where it's supposed to be according to the law, and he says, "You mind if I if I go you know, check it out?" I said, "No." I said, "Come on, I'll go with you." So we went, uh, walked in the bar, and my officer started to walk behind the bar himself. I said, "Excuse me, officer." I said, "What you know? Where are you going?" He says, "I'm going to check out your liquor, liquor license." He said, "It's okay." I said, "I'll get it for you." I said, "There's one, the main rule here that we have: the only people that are allowed behind the bar are the bartenders on duty." The porters who restock the coolers or myself. Those are the rules, okay? And he said, uh, you know, uh, Kenny, says, you seem to be a little smartass. I said, I'm not a smartass. I'm just telling you the way we run business, we run things here. So I took the license off the wall, brought it to the end of the bar, showed it to both officers. Uh, they walked away from me. They talked for a couple of minutes, and they, they were walking around in the bar looking at the uh, people. You know, they were eating pizza and having beers after they got done bowling. They came back up to me, and uh, one, one of the officers said, uh, 
Okay, okay. And he said, we'll, we'll see you about five or six months months down the road. Come and check up on you about five or six months down the road. And I said, what, what does that mean? Is that some, some kind of a threat? You know? And his partner said, no, we don't make threats. We keep promises. And sure as shit, five and a half months later, I get arrested for this BE arm robbery and rape. That's the old, that's the common thread that why they came after me in my, in my, in my belief. Okay. Nothing and else. That's why, and that's why that's the details, why the details are, are so important. important. And, you and you believe that that, that is that why, um, when they when were they looking for someone, someone to pin something on that they found you. Absolutely. So as, um, that was in February. The rape happened on April 30th of 1994. I can remember reading about it in the, in the, there's a big story in Macomb Daily in the uh, Detroit Free Press and the uh, Detroit News. And I remember reading about the story, okay? And I thought, gee, this is, in Clinton Township, this is, this is horrible. So um, it was 10 weeks after the rape happened, uh, uh, Mike. It was on a uh, Saturday morning, but 8.30 in the morning, I'm in bed because I worked late the night before. There's a knock on my front door, and uh, I answer the door, and there's a young young lady standing on my porch wearing a bit green business suit. And I said, can I help you? And she says, is your name Kenny? I said, yes, it is. What can I do for you? Well, when I said my name was Kenny, she moved on the side. Four plainclothes officers rushed me. They tackled me. They threw me on the, on the floor in my living room, handcuffed me behind my back. And they told me that I was going to be taken down to the Macomb County Jail to be placed in a lineup because according to them, they had received an anonymous phone call that Ken Wendemko from Kingswood Lanes looks like this composite of the rapist that was issued in, in the paper 10 weeks earlier for this rape. And, uh, you know, the lady, by this, the lady, the lady who turned out to be a, a, police, a police officer, she told me that, she mentioned the lady's name who was raped. I said, what the hell are you talking about? I don't know who you're talking about, you know. So they took me down to the Macomb County Jail, and that's the, that's when I met uh, Detective Austin Marlette for the first time. And, uh, I, you know, they told me um, Marlette, Marlette seemed kind of seemed kind of laid back. Austin was kind of a aggressor, I don't want to say smartass at that point, but he was, he did turn out to be smart you know, later on. And I'll get into that detail a little bit more later. Um, so he told me that um, they received an anonymous tip that Ken Manuka looks like this composite in the, in the uh, Macomb Daily and I'm going to be placed in Atlanta. And he had this composite and he showed it to me and uh, he asked me who I thought it looked like. And I told him, I, th I think it looks like Phil Collins, the, the musician. And Austin said, I think it looks just like you. And I, you know, I sat there and I took my glasses off. I says, you know, with all due respect, if you think this composite looks like me, I said, you need these glasses more than I do. And Austin said, you're real smart ass, ain't you, mother? I don't know, pardon me if I say the wrong, I don't want to swear. but Swear all you want. It's that's, a podcast. That's, that's what, uh, that's, that's the way it was. That's what happened, you know. Um. So I told him I wanted to call an attorney, and he told me that he was not going to allow me to call an attorney. However, he had an attorney that was going to be in the viewing room with the victim, and I could speak with the attorney after the lineup was over. 
And I told him, I said, look, I don't know that much about the law. Back then I didn't. I know now because I studied criminal law every day for almost 10 years and I was locked up. Okay. And I said, but I knew I do know it's my constitutional right to call an attorney. And Olson's exact words are, he says, when I'm going, one way or another, your ass is going in that lineup. Quote, unquote. Okay. So they put me in the lineup with um, five other gentlemen. All five guys had dark hair. They all had mustaches. I've never had a, never had a mustache in my life. Um, at first, they put me in a number six position. Okay. And then they took a little break. And they, for some reason, they brought in a riser, like a three-inch riser, maybe out of two by fours. They put it in the, they put it in front of the number two spot and they told me to move down to number two. Okay. And then uh, they brought the uh, then the one of the officers said uh, we had to repeat a line that the victim said the the rape of the attacker said to her, what that line was what time does your husband come home? And apparently at the time of the rape her husband was in Myrtle Beach for eight days golfing. Okay. So we all had to say that line, you, you know, what time does your husband come home? And then um, um, one of the officers opened the door for the, so the six of us could walk out together. And I approached the officer and I said, can I please speak to the attorney that Detective Oston told me would be with the victim, in, you know, in the, with the victim? And he kind of grinned. He said, he already left the building. I said, how can that be? You just opened the door five seconds ago and Detective Oston told me I could talk to the attorney. What, when I was talking to that one officer, Oster was coming down the aisle and walking towards me, and I made the same request of him. Can I please speak to the attorney that you told me is going to be was with the victim? And he said, well, he already did leave the building. He did leave the building. I said, then I want to, I want to call an attorney because I don't know what the hell you're talking about. And he said, he said Kenny, everything's okay, and they, they released me. So back then, um, I had to call my dad. My dad was still alive at the time. God bless his soul. Um, he was 76 years old. He was a diabetic, and he came down to the county jail to pick me up to drive me back home. And um, we, in my, on my way back from, to my house in the jail, my dad asked me what happened, and uh, I told him the same story I'm telling you. I've, I've never changed my story because it's, because it's true. And as we pulled in my driveway, there was an unmarked police car sitting in front of my home with one, one gentleman sitting inside the car. So my dad and I got out of his car, started to walk up the door to uh, go inside my house because I wanted to take a shower at this point. You know, I was sitting in the county jail for four or five hours. I felt like my skin was crawling. So walked up on the porch, went to put my key in the door. I pulled out my keys and this, um, as it turned out, the officer who was sitting in the unmarked car, that turned out to be, we found out through the, through the investigation, that was Lieutenant Al Ernst, who was... Uh, the supervising attorney, or Austin's boss, okay? So he came up to me, he says, well, Nemco, what do you think you're going? I said, I'm going inside my, ho my house to take a shower. I said, I feel filthy. And he said, well, I'm sorry. Uh, he can't allow me to go inside my home because he was waiting for a search warrant. I said, look it, I've done nothing wrong. I own this home. You're more than welcome to come inside with me. I have nothing to hide, but I want to go take a shower. And I went to, as I put put my key in the door, he pulled his pistol out and pointed it at my head. He says, why don't go step away from the door? And um, when that happened, my dad, this bothers me, I thought my dad was going to have a heart attack. He started shaking. He said, Kenny, Kenny, Kenny he's going to kill you. What would you do? I said, yeah, I didn't do anything. 
So um, I told my dad, I said, let's, uh, let's go back to his house. So I, I drove my dad's car um, back to my mom and dad's condo in Clinton Township. And my mom made soup for it and sandwiches for us. And I took a shower over there and uh, at their place. And about three hours later, I, my dad drove me back to my house and pulled in the driveway. All the lights were on in my house. The doors were wide open. And we walked inside, as we walked inside the house, it looked like uh, a tornado had gone, gone through the whole house. That's how everything was messed up. And the police went so far, they went inside my refrigerator and I had jars of pickles and peppers. They broke all the glass jars on my, on my kitchen floor. Okay. So my dad started crying. I mean, this is this is like out of a movie. I, you know, it, it, Mike, you're you, know, you, you You don't, I mean, normal police officers uh, serving a search warrant isn't going to, aren't going to do that. I, I mean, you don't see that every day. This just, uh, just what you're describing sounds crazy. And I have one question that I just have to ask because I keep forgetting. Okay. Have you ever had a problem with Clinton Township Police before that one incident at the, no. um, at the bar that night? No. You had you. What was your? Did you have any criminal record? Had you been um, any misdemeanors or felonies in your whole no. life? No. No. Okay. Can, can uh, you imagine? Can you imagine, Mike? Uh, you 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 saw the story on the news. You read it in the paper. It's a horrific rape. One of the worst uh, violent crimes uh, that that you could imagine. And here you are. Uh, the police are busting down your door, saying you did it, and and busting up your house while your dad is there. Uh, I mean, it's just un unbelievable. Well, it sounds like they're completely unchecked. Uh, and and you know, I keep going back to the story. You know, is this just, you know, they targeted them because of, of that one night. Um, and Mike, as you said, that's, there's no other reason why um, that, you know, no other logical reason why they would come after me. And I've had some great attorneys representing me, you know, since I've been home in my civil suit and including Gail Panikoff, they, they all come to the same conclusion. So let me tell you what happened. Okay. I my dad goes home. Um, I set up, I tried to get the house back in order the best I could. Next morning, I got I had to go to the bank, went to open the bowling alley, and I went to Myers to pick up, to replace some of the stuff that the cops that had broken in my refrigerator, some of the jars. And they come and I pulled in the driveway, and Austin and Marlette pulled behind my back bumper, like to block my car off in case I tr tried to run. But I wasn't, I had no reason to run. I did not anything wrong. So I got out of my car, and I was holding a bag one bag of groceries in my left arm, and Austin said, why don't you go drop that bag and put your hands on the roof of your car? And I said, why are you bothering me now? I said, I haven't done anything wrong. And during that conversation, four marked cars from Clinton Township, they, they came on the scene, two pulled up on my lawn and my neighbor's lawn. There were eight, eight uniform officers got out of their cars, okay? And Austin told me again, uh, he says, when I'm going, I'm going to tell you for the last time, drop that bag and put your hands on the roof of your car. And when he said it the second time, all the cops drew their guns and two of them had sawed off shotguns. I, and I, for a second, Mike, I thought they were gonna kill me. So I put the bag on the driveway, put my hands on the, top, on the roof of my car and Austin handcuffed me behind my back. I said, you wanna tell me what I suppose, what you think I've done, you know, did wrong now? And I'll never forget these words for as long as I live from, from Austin. He says, you know what, when I'm, I'm going to start calling you the million dollar man. And I said, you, you want to tell me 
what that means because I, I don't know what you're talking about. Quote, unquote, his exact words to me, he says, Wanamco, by the time I get done fucking with you, it's going to cost you a million dollars to get your ass out of prison. Quote, unquote. And this guy was so arrogant, he, had, during his deposition for the lawsuit, he admitted saying that. He, and he said, no, it's on tape. Said, yeah, I said it. What's the, we know, what's the big deal? But that's how arrogant this, this officer was. And I don't, now, ever since that happened, I don't uh, refer to him as Detective Osten. I started calling him Defective Osten. Okay. Is he still in the force as far as you know? No, he, no, he, uh, he passed away uh, a, few, a number of years ago. Okay. Um, he, he died of brain cancer. And he, uh, that's another kind of uh, odd situation. If you look at the players involved in this case, the uh, judge is dead. Judge Schwartz has passed, passed away. Austin passed away. The court-appointed attorney passed away. What was you know, that person's name? The court-appointed attorney? Albert Mark. Albert Markowski. And he is the one who tried your criminal case? Yeah, he was a, he was given to me on a Friday afternoon, 15 counts of CSC1, one B&E, one, &E, one uh, breaking, uh, one uh, armed robbery, 15 counts CSC1. Judge Schwartz gave him Friday, a Saturday and Sunday to prepare for the case. I, Mike, you, you know, I, you're a very well-respected attorney. I know the law. Anybody with any common sense... You, uh, a good uh, half-ass attorney couldn't defend a client on a DUI ticket uh, over the weekend. It would and take sure me a year to prepare for a case like yours. And I I, uh, I mean, that is just so outrageous. Um, so so Margolis, I assume he asked for motion after motion uh, to, to, to adjourn, or was he any good? Because nothing in your file, nothing in the movie, nothing that I've read talks about this person. And I, as was, a lawyer, I have to, I mean... I would be screaming and yelling um, that, that that he wasn't ready. Tell, I want to spend a few minutes on that. I'll tell you exactly what happened. First of all, the court. I was given a court appointed attorney. His name was Lawrence Pepler. Okay, I had a problem with him because he wouldn't take any of my phone calls when I was still in the county jail. And I found out that his brother was a Clinton Township police officer. Okay, oh, so it was on a Friday afternoon, Mike. This and we this has been proven in federal court. Judge, Judge uh, Schwartz tells me that I'm going to take Mr. Markowski. And if I don't like who he gives me, I can defend myself. And come Monday morning, we're picking a jury. That's exactly what happened. Judge, Judge Marlingo, what, what's going on from the prosecutor's side of this? I mean, if a prosecutor sees a case like this moving this quickly, don't they raise their hand and say, wait a minute, I'm not even prepared? Well, you're supposed to. I mean, the uh, the part, uh, look, there were so many things that went wrong that the Netflix series couldn't concentrate on every single thing. But but Judge Schwartz, Judge Schwartz's uh, behavior in this was atrocious. Um, the Court of Appeals should have reversed it just on the basis of um, the attorney not having time to prepare. There is no rational explanation that's ever been given to me as to why Judge Schwartz demanded that this case should go without giving defense counsel enough time. Also, Mr. Markowski did make a record in front of Judge Schwartz, but it appears that he did not take an emergency appeal to the Court of Appeals. Um, and, and certainly the assistant prosecutor on the case uh, should have said, uh, 
you know, Your Honor, uh, you know, I appreciate the fact that you want a speedy trial. I want a speedy trial, but uh, this thing is going to get reversed in a heartbeat unless you you allow defense counsel time to prepare. I'm asking you on behalf of the people uh, whose obligation it is to do justice to slow this down. But um, Judge Michael David Schwartz was such a strong, headstrong guy that uh, people couldn't really stand up to him. And Judge Schwartz and Linda Davis had a very close friendship over the years. And basically uh, I learned after the fact just a number of things happened in that courtroom, which uh, are beyond the scope of this podcast. But uh, I know I know he's dead and he's not here to, to defend himself, but uh, he was not a very good judge. And this was a very significant injustice. And yes, the assistant prosecutor had an obligation to slow it down and say, this is unacceptable that the defense attorney uh, doesn't have time to, to, to prepare. Judge Marlinga, when this during this weekend, during this Friday to Monday, and I think I know the answer to this. I mean, you're, you're supervising hundreds, probably thousands of cases. You have 50, 60 uh, assistant prosecutors under you. Did this case make your radar during this period of time, during this trial? Did you even know this trial was happening? No, I mean, I have no conscious memory of, of it happening. Now, because it was a criminal sexual conduct, I have no doubt that if you could transport me back to 1994, that I would I would probably know that there's a trial going on in Judge, in Judge Schwartz's court. If I knew anything, it was that there was an eyewitness identification of the defendant and probably would have been told that it's a strong case with no evidentiary problems, um, but nobody brought it to my attention. Nobody brought it to the attention of my chief assistant because as happens with, you know, the six to 8,000 cases that we try, most of the time you don't have issues that, that get to the, either the chief assistant or the prosecutor for review. There was nothing at the time that made this case stand out in any way. It was a brutal rape, a good eyewitness identification with circumstantial evidence backing it up. That's probably what I would have been told but I don't even remember that because at the time, I have no conscious memory of this case going on. You know, uh, Mike, if I can chime in uh, to what the, uh, Carl said, I believed from day one that <coughs> Carl had no knowledge of what the evidence that of, of the evidence that you know being withheld in my case by the detectives. Never pointed a finger at Carl. Carl's been more than more than honest throughout this whole ordeal and. We had a very emotional uh, day, day one um, in a jury room when they asked for um, a final uh, buckle swab for the DNA testing to confirm I was I was innocent. And Carl knows what I'm talking about. <coughs> but Carl's been acted very professional always, and I have the utmost respect for him. But but you know I feel like I mean I I I've always, I always had training for the assistant prosecutors that our job is to do the right thing, that is to convict the guilty, set the innocent free, and protect everybody's constitutional rights in the process. But if if one of the 65 assistant prosecutors is off on their own path, it's really almost impossible to check and balance everything because you can't be watching every courtroom. 
and you have to depend somewhat on the integrity of the judge, well, a lot on the integrity of the judges. And it just so happens that we had a judge who was was not very attentive to the uh, due process rights of a defendant, but the prosecutor who <coughs> had tunnel vision in this case and just uh, just didn't do what she was supposed to do. I agree. Yeah. I, I, it's it's uh, it's mind blowing, and and I knew you know. Can I? When I was asking him those questions, I know how hard it is to manage forty plus attorneys having thousands of trials a year, it's impossible to know the details of every single case. So I, I just, I was just curious if this, if you remember this making his radar, he doesn't. Um, no, wait, I, will, I will say this, wait a minute. if you remember on the, uh, uh, I don't know if no, Miss Davis wasn't interviewed for, for, for Netflix, but there was a statement in the paper. She claims that she had brought this to my attention. I, I really don't have any memory, but if she did bring something to my attention, I'm sure that she would not have said things like, um, uh, at first at the lineup, the witness couldn't identify the uh, uh, the perpetrator, didn't pick out anybody, but then there was a conversation on the side and she came back and she identified uh, somebody. I'm sure that she wouldn't have told me that the detective was holding back exculpatory evidence with regard to uh, phone tapes that were taken um, with the uh, with uh, with Mr. Winemko's former girlfriend threatening him, so that she had a motive to 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 talk about him in a in a, in a negative way. I'm sure then she didn't tell me that we have a jailhouse snitch uh, whom I've uh, sat down with and I've convinced him that he's he's got to uh, he's got to testify, and I even gave him some uh, some words for him to use. I mean, obviously, if you are off on your own path and not following what the office rules and regulations are, you're not going to tell the boss or the chief assistant or anybody that you're doing things not according to the book. I tried to, and, and just to put walk this through my head a little bit, and I and I and I'm, I feel like you know you're you're a prosecutor, and I don't know how much experience uh, Linda Davis had at the time, but you get it's a big case. It's if it's in the media, and it's a, a sexual assault case, and the guy's looking at forty years in prison. It's it's a big case, so you would think that someone would be saying. I want to run this up the flagpole to, to make sure I get everything right, that I do a good job, that I get a conviction, that I do all these things, and that when I see something, some hurdle, uh, that I, I can figure out how best to to represent the people. Uh, but it sounds like it sounds like she just went uh, opened the barn door gates and said, "I'm going to get a conviction, and I'm going to just just go, no matter what, no matter Kevin, what." Kevin, don't forget, she ran for Carl's job. Right at like two years yeah. after, yeah, yeah. How many years? Well, there was uh, it was about a, about a year before she started the campaign, and I think it's quite clear that at the time that this case was being tried, uh, Tom Oston was a big supporter of her on her campaign. Judge Schwartz was a big supporter of her on her campaign. Judge Schwartz even was pushing fundraising tickets for Miss Davis in his office while he was talking to attorneys discussing disposition of cases and possible plea bargains. I was told by an attorney that in the middle of such a conversation, he pushed one of the tickets for a fundraiser in front of that attorney. I mean, this is highly unethical, unlawful stuff for Judge Schwartz to engage in that. But, I, I that, just even... shows the, but that just shows the community of interest 
that was secretly working against Mr. Winemko because you basically had the detective in charge, um, the, the judge and the assistant prosecutor all working together. You know, it's like it's like uh, it's like the TV series Making a Murderer or any of these shows that we see on TV. It, that it's like the perfect storm that he fell into, and that the checks and balances weren't there, uh, didn't save him. Uh, the attorneys, I mean, there were so many failures, and the fact that none of this, uh, the cigarette butt and the panties, uh, weren't tested. It, you know, makes the head want to explode when you're hearing all this stuff. Mike, Mike, can I add something to that? Yeah. Um, this and this goes back to to give credence to the dishonesty of Linda Davis. This is all part of the trial record. Okay. The I at the back in '94, I was five foot ten, hundred eighty-five pounds. Actual rapist was six foot six, two hundred ninety pounds. We know that's a fact. I saw a picture of that guy on that series. He's this huge, yeah. fat guy with a face three of yours. Now, now this is this is this is all part of the court record. It's all been proven. What I'm going to tell you, okay? They brought in the prosecution brought in a an expert from the Michigan State Police Crime Lab. He testified that there were semen stains pubic hairs found in the victim's bed, okay? They did ABO blood type testing. The ABO blood type testing showed that the semen and the hairs came from someone with type A blood, I'm type O. That ruled me out. He testified there were fingerprints found in the victim's house. It didn't match the husband, didn't match the victim, didn't match me. That ruled me out. Nothing ruled, nothing. Included was inclusive, you know, pointing towards me. Now you guys are professionals. If you know anything about uh, DNA testing, if the ABO blood type test doesn't match, if it's a different blood type, it's impossible for the Kenny, DNA. Kenny, it's it's obvious what you're saying. It's obvious, but the was it argued to the jury these things? No, that's and now I blame Mr. Markowski for that because in my no, heart, he didn't argue. He didn't argue anything you just said. No, nope, nope. I mean, and um, you know, and then after that evidence was introduced, and then you know they brought the victim on a stand. Originally, it, the victim said she was only sixty percent accurate, or the, the composite was only sixty percent accurate. She her, she was very consistent in her statements to the police. She said that when the guy broke into her home, he blindfolded her with two pair of her panties, and secured the panties with a pair of her pantyhose. He was already masked. She said that she never saw the guy's face. She said for a matter of two seconds, at one point, I guess the the his mask had risen above his chin. She said he had a, a deep cleft chin, a growly voice, no his no body hair. He was completely shaved. Okay, and she thought he was between six two, six three, two hundred twenty, two hundred thirty pounds, about thirty years old. Okay. The composite, right? And this, there's so many questions. I, if Markowski was around, I'd like to ask him. I've been wearing glasses for 30 years. If I'm not wearing my glasses, I'm blind as a bat. Markowski never brought up the point that, well, the, or, and the victim never made a statement that the guy, the rapist, was was wearing glasses. I can't see if I don't take my glasses off. If I'm not wearing my glasses, I'm a blind as a bat. I can't. 
have any mask over my face, I, it would be like walking in the dark. I mean, it's so ridiculous, you know. And then, um, so those things, you know, the jury. And the, and the shoe size didn't match either. Pardon? Shoe size. Yeah, shoe yeah, there's so yeah. many inconsistencies that a first-year law student should have been able to, to, to come up with some reasonable doubt. Is Markowski dead too? Where's yes. He? He's he, dead he too? Passed, he passed away five, six years ago maybe. And, you know, it's funny that you mentioned a first-year law student would recognize that. I have a granddaughter just turned 17, just graduated from high school. She figured it out. She's never been to law school in her life, you know. Well, but it's well, common sense. Judge but, Marlinga mentioned in the Netflix series that he thought the entire lineup was unconstitutional. I thought that was pretty interesting, uh, Judge, um, that you saw that as unconstitutional. Tell, tell me what, what you thought was unconstitutional, and has anything um, been changed as far as you know and how they do these things? Well, the, uh, I mean, what, uh, what Kenny said just a short time ago, that there was a riser that was put in to artificially increase his height. That's, that's just crazy. Uh, it, it, it can't happen. Um, the, uh, you're supposed to list everybody who's present. Uh, I, I really don't know this for sure, but I, knew, but I thought for years that Linda Davis wasn't even present at the lineup. And Kenny told me, no, she was. And I'm thinking to myself, no, her name would have been listed as one of the people at the lineup. It, it has to be. And so I thought that Kenny was just mistaken. But he kept on saying, no, no, she was there. And I'm thinking, okay, well, look, at you went through a horrible ordeal, but you, you might not remember every detail correctly. It turns out he was right. She was there. She admitted on the Netflix show that she was there. Her name wasn't listed. Um, that's that's a huge red red flag immediately. Plus, the victim doesn't pick anybody out the first time around. Goes to have a secret, unrecorded conference with somebody. Uh, don't know. Comes back and makes a positive identification. Uh, you, you put all those things together. Had Markowski filed a motion to quash the lineup, it would have been granted. And I think it would have raised a serious issue about maybe dismissing the entire case because those are essentials of a due process argument that you're entitled to a fair lineup. And then you add to it that Kenny wasn't allowed to talk to an attorney or that the attorney left before the lineup was over. That should have been that should have been thrown out. And remember, prior to, to, to the lineup, you had a person saying, I thought it was only 40 percent sure. Um, but but whatever it was, circumstances in which the victim was blindfolded, the rapist was masked. It is something happened at the lineup to convince the the innocent victim of this that the person standing at number six or number two, whatever, was the one that the prosecutor and the police had in mind. There was a tip off. And that is absolutely forbidden. And it's, it's, it, it's not a matter of should something be done. The, the, the rules, the regulations, the law, the protocols for lineup all say that those are things that should not happen. And, and they did. And, and a, a decent circuit court judge would have, would have thrown out the identification and maybe even dismissed the case when you add to it that all of the other circumstantial evidence didn't add up. The attacker was 
one of the things that the victim said it was very flabby, was just a terribly out of shape fat person. Ken was a very lean former hockey player, didn't fit that description at all. Um, the shoe size did not match. There was there was nothing that matched. The only thing that I suppose, in order to to make some sense out of the nonsensical, is that when there was a search warrant that was executed at uh, Kenny's house, a pair of latex gloves was re was uh, recovered, and a set of handcuffs, which is are not unusual uh, items that somebody might have. That's the sum total. That's the sum total of the circumstantial evidence. All of the other circumstantial evidence, the the, the, the blood type, the weight, the flab on the on the perpetrator, uh, the shoe size, uh, I suppose per, the fact that cigarettes were left and that the perpetrator smoked and Kenny didn't smoke, yeah, I suppose you could lie about that, but you could check with other witnesses to see if he had a history of smoking. Every item of circumstantial evidence that you look at after the fact, except for the latex gloves and the handcuffs, pointed to a perpetrator other than Kenny, but especially, especially, even without doing the DNA, the uh, the, the blood type analysis. I mean, this man was excluded. It, it, it's, it's, it's a shame that it was even bound over for trial, but once it got to trial, the identification should have been thrown out and the case should have been dismissed. It's, it's, it, it, it's you unbelievable. You look at this thing, and you, you, I, I wonder if it's a, a perfect storm or if it's a, a conspiracy. I, you have a, apparently a police officer who, who may have it out for Kenny because he's thrown out of a bowling alley. Uh, then you have a rape, and then you have an anonymous call that says, I think I think it's Kenny, and uh, they bring him in to look where he's supposed to look like this guy who's who looks like Phil Collins. He looks nothing like him. But how, how do you get the how do you get the prosecutor on board? How do you get the judge on board? Uh, do you just end up with a a court appointed attorney who doesn't know what he's doing, or 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 can a can a cop say, hey? There's this terrible case. I know this guy did it. Let's get him. Let's go. Let's go get him. I mean, is it? Can you? Can the system be so bad and so dirty? I I, I tend to like police officers. I like I like prosecutors. I, I I like judges. I just it just seems so outrageous in this case that you could have all of these things stacked up uh, and and not be some sort of conspiracy between some of the players. Kevin, Kevin, Kevin I, I want to jump in here. I, I just because because Kenny and I have a different point of view. My view is is that it was the perfect storm, but my point of view is even more scary than what Kenny's talking about. Because sure, bad people entering into conspiracies is one thing, but here's the thing that I want all judges, especially appellate judges, who tend to not pay very much attention to these claims of actual innocence. Perfect storms do happen. A friend of mine once said, when something goes wrong, it's not usually one thing going wrong. It's about seven or eight things that coincidentally go wrong at the same time and produce these big injustices, which means that we, you could be outraged about Kenny's case, but if he just said, oh, that was an idiosyncratic thing that happened to him because the players were, were bad people, that would be too easy. What you have to come to terms with is that we have a justice system that is run by human beings who are imperfect. And once you get tunnel vision, George Gugasian and Tom Howlett, the attorneys for Kenny in the civil case made this point. It was the tunnel vision that took over. You had a vicious rape. You wanted to get somebody. This kind of stuff would not happen if it was an overdue book in the library, okay? 
if, if the worse the crime is, the more likely human beings are to jump to conclusions, to lock things in, to not want to get the bad guy get away. And of course, they've already gone past the point of thinking, is this the bad guy or not? They are so damn committed to nailing somebody that they exclude in their minds. Everything else becomes unimportant. The few fragments of things that they can argue take over. They get the, the, the tunnel vision and an injustice like this happens. And that's even scarier to me than, than bad people in a conspiracy because that you can root out one by one. But these, this kind of, these kind of mistakes and the unwillingness to go back and look at things because we don't want to, we, we want finality. We don't want to upset the victims. We, 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 we don't want these things to last forever. That's, that's the rotten attitude that infects the, the, the justice system when you are not willing to go back and just say, wait a minute, we're human beings, we make mistakes, we have a tunnel vision view sometimes, did that happen here? And yes, it happened here. And then after it happened, nobody was willing to fess up. Carl, perfectly said. Kevin, Mike, let me add this something real quick, okay? I, you know, when I, I speak, I've spoken at so many colleges, law schools, since I've been home, one of the first questions I get is people ask me, do I hate cops? And I, I have the same answer. I do not hate cops. I have the utmost respect for police officers, especially the ones on the street 24-7, okay? However, you call a spade a spade, there's a small percentage of police detectives and prosecutors and some judges that are rotten, okay? If you look at my case in particular, this, this was no mistake. And that's why I chose the title of my book, Deliberate Injustice. I think it's the perfect title for it because what was done to me was done deliberately with the knowledge of the people who take, take an oath to uphold the law. That's a fact. And I was thinking when Carl was talking, I was thinking about the, um, Mike, I don't know if you read, uh, Judge Zadkoff wrote a 51-page opinion in order when uh, Macomb County was trying to have my civil suit tossed. He basically accused the Linda, uh, Linda Davis, Austin, Marlette, uh, Ernst of conspiracy to obstruct justice, wow. withholding evidence, supporting perjury with a snitch. Those are serious crimes. I don't have to tell you guys that, you know. Um, and he made a statement that he had high, uh, he doubted that there was even reason, a reason for probable cause to arrest in the first place. And Judge Zadkoff was a very, well-respected man. He came out of Macomb County, you know, and uh, so when you have, you know, and, and an honest person, honest judge, which we all assume we want, we want every judge and prosecutor, every police officer to be, you know, to act fairly. Unfortunately, um, situations, you know, such as mine or my fellow examinees, it doesn't happen. And that, that's got to stop. That has well, to stop. And that's what drives me every day when I get up to keep on fighting and well, fighting. Keep you know, you got to keep bringing attention to this, but there's so many points being made here. But, you know, it is such a perfect story. It is. That, that after this prosecutor was appointed a judge. I, you know, it, like, it, 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 it's like another one of like, like you can't write this. You couldn't write a better script or a I agree. script. I, I agree, Mike. And to the, this, I remember when I, the first time I heard that, I, I was so pissed off 
And I, to this day, I still can't believe that she served that long on the bench. That she doesn't even deserve to be an attorney, in my opinion. You know, if so, um, yeah, and, so she 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 ran for prosecutor. She didn't. She obviously didn't get get that. Thank God. And then she was appointed judge in two thousand. And I think she just recently retired in the last two, three, four years. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. And she was okay. appointed by uh, John Engler was the governor that appointed her to the bench, if I remember correctly. I know it was because I remember reading about it when I was still in prison. Judge Marlinga, did you have anything to do with uh, anybody ever ask your opinion if she should be a judge? Uh, no, um, but I will say this. Uh, the the rumor was, and it's a rational rumor, is that she got appointed to the district court judgeship as a uh, reward for running against me in 1996. Um, even if she didn't win, um, John Engler, the Republican Party, were interested in beating me up because in those days, not now, but in those days, I was a uh, more valuable political commodity. Um, those days have long since passed, so it's hard to remember when I was a rising star in Democratic Party politics, but I was briefly. Um, <laughs> Uh, but um, at the time, um, her uh, her running against me was uh, she was actually recruited, uh, and uh, some years afterwards, then she was uh, given this appointment, and it's consistent with what I've been told that uh, that was her reward for running against me. Can I can I just jump in for one sec? I, yeah. I, one thing that we sort of glossed over. I think we talked about it in the intro that. Um, Kenny spent nine years in prison. Kenny, you, you were in Jackson prison. Um, I believe you were at a point where you tried to kill yourself, weren't you? I mean, there's, there's, this is not like just, oh, this is this terrible case of injustice. I mean, a human being spent nine years in Jackson prison. Can you just give our viewers a little bit of what that was like for you uh, just day to day, knowing that you were innocent? Well, um, Kev, I, I can... Remember, I got the day I got to Jackson after being transported from Macomb County Jail, December 27th, uh, 1994, two days after Christmas. I remember I, I called just before I left the county jail. I, I, I got to make a phone call. I called my mom and dad to um, tell them I was leaving. And, um, to this day, I can hear, I can still hear them crying on the phone when I told him that news and I was uh, transported to Jackson, went through the routine, you know, take your clothes off, they spray you down with the hose you down with a, like a power wash, spray the disinfectant on you. And I went, um, I can remember walking down that ramp in, in, uh, seven, in quarantine in seven block and um, Guys yelling, hey, fresh meat, fresh meat, you know, nice ass, honky, you know, and uh, I was scared to death, guys. I, I was scared to death, and I get into my first cell, 41 Fourth at Jackson, and I, my whole body was shaking. I was scared to death, and got to the point where I sat down in that bunk, and I started tearing my bed sheets into strips. I was going to hang myself. And that's that's a true story, because I didn't know how the hell something like this could happen in our country, or how I even got there, you know. And um, I remember, um, I got down on my knees, 
kneeled down next to my bunk and I started to pray. I said, Good Lord, please, you know I'm innocent. Please show me what to do. Show me what to do. And as God is my witness to this day, I felt like a hand on my shoulder. And I heard a deep voice and it said, Kenny, you are going to be just fine. And that's when I got, it was like I got this surge of energy and I stood up um, and I just, just made my mind up. I'm going to fight this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do whatever I have to do. I'm going to study the law. And I don't know how long it's going to take, but the truth will come out. And it, thank God it did. And thank but God what, you, you stayed sane and you started reading those books and you wrote to Barry Sheck in 1995. And there are, I mean, we could talk for five hours. Oh, yeah. About all of the things that fell in place after the fact that led you to be a free man. Um, and that a lot of it you you started. You started with the letters. You started with the research. You maintained your innocence since day one, which is a key component that we keep hearing, Kevin, when we're interviewing people like Ken. And when I'm reading about this is that, you know, you, you mentioned in the Netflix series that um, the judge was mad at you during sentencing because you wouldn't show contrition. You wouldn't. Uh, show remorse right. and uh, innocent people. I mean, unless you're lying to favor, uh, you know, to curry favor with the judge, which I'm sure happens actually a oh, lot, sure. yeah. but uh, you know, the judge wants you to say, I'm sorry, I did this to get a lesser sentence. And had you done that, you might've gotten a lesser sentence, right? I'm sure, I'm sure I would have, but I'm not going to plead. And you know, you know, I know uh, that's not completed, but but the, the, just the fact and, and Judge Marling is shaking his head. Yes, uh, the judges, for some reason, they want not for some reason. I get it. You know, the judges want people to take responsibility for their crimes, want to apologize to the victims, and they get some kind of benefit sometimes in sentencing. And you maintained knowing that you that your sentence was going to be higher, that that you were innocent and that's one reason I think that saved you. I agree, Mike. And as you said, some judges want want to put uh, let a victim have closure. They want to make a good impression to the people. But what they don't want to do is give an opportunity for all of the facts to come out to be put in front of the jury. That and that's you know that's one thing that happened in my case. And if you look. This is one thing that always amazed me. If you look, and I keep track of with all most of the exonerees around the country. I've been doing that for almost seventeen years now, and uh, there's a, there's like a common thread. If you could understand what I'm trying to say, that runs through all these all the exonerees where we, you know, we would never plead guilty to something we we didn't do. Okay, we just want to correct the problems so they don't happen to anybody else. Because every man and woman, I don't, white or black, I don't, Mexican, I don't, I don't care. To me, it doesn't matter. We're all human beings. We care enough. Nobody should have to go through what we had to go, what we went through uh, in this country. No way. And as long as I live, I, I'm going to have a problem to try to get it by me. I'll tell you that right now. Yeah. Here's one thing I, because I, I, we've gone a long time in this podcast, I want to emphasize because there are always skeptics who think, well, he says he's innocent and the system freedom, but nah, maybe maybe he's really not. Maybe we're being fed up a line over here. 
I want everybody to know that the DNA positively identified another person as the perpetrator, that there was DNA left on some uh, pantyhose nylons that were stuffed in the victim's mouth, that there was DNA from the uh, uh, scratchings that the victim had uh, scratched the perpetrator under her fingernails, that there was DNA left on a cigarette butt. Um, and that DNA came back as belonging to the same person not the victim's husband, not uh, a person with whom the victim had a voluntary affair earlier, um, and and certainly not not, not, not not Kenny. It came back to another person, and years later he was caught and he confessed. And so we absolutely know with 100% certainty that Ken Winemko was an innocent man. There, there's no room for doubt, all right? So... Um, when, when people are listening to this, because I know, and this is a common, because I've argued these cases uh, both in circuit and in the appellate courts, the appellate, when I was an attorney, obviously, appellate judges are slow to recognize uh, that um, there can be substantial errors below. And um, there's, there's the, the rules that are written in the court rules make it almost impossible for an innocent man to be vindicated because it's proof beyond a reasonable doubt for conviction at trial. But once a person is convicted, you almost have to prove with 100% certainty that the person is innocent. It turns completely around on appeal. And and the other problem, which you, this it made me think of it, is that in order to get favorable um, consideration on parole, you have to admit your crime. And so there are innocent people who are spending years in prison who are innocent. And at some point they know I can be out in six months or a year if I just say I did it. Right. Well, to, to hell with principle, I want to get out of this hell hole. And, and guys like, like Kenny are the, are the exception who say, no, I'm innocent. I'm never going to give up my integrity. I'm never going to get up, give up the, the, the principles I have. But the system is, is built to crush the innocent. If you are convicted as an innocent person, it's almost impossible to get a fair hearing. God bless you. And you, Carl, you are absolutely 100% right. You know, I, I, you know, he is right. And I liked what he said, um, Ken, when he's talking to the Court of Appeals judges. I read your four-page appeal from the Michigan Court of Appeals. And I know that these Court of Appeals judges hear hundreds of these a month. And that, and that, how do you, um, and then I'm, I've never been a judge, don't want to be a judge, but that, you know, I don't know if they're jaded. I don't know. Uh, I mean, they're reading so many of these and I don't know, uh, if you need a really, really good attorney to be advocating on your behalf. And then we're talking about money, uh, money issues. Cause we talked about racism and black and white, but you didn't talk about had you had money for a good paid lawyer. Would the, any of this has happened? You know, you were stuck with a court-appointed lawyer, and I know there's some really good court-appointed lawyers, but yours wasn't a good one. Um, and had you had a good lawyer, would this have happened? Uh, had the Court of Appeals judges uh, really read it and read between the lines like Judge Marlinga's suggesting, would they have woken up? But it's such an odd place to be, you know, reading your all these briefs, and, you know, there's thousands of people claiming they're innocent. I, Most I agree. aren't. Most aren't. I'm sure you agree on that. I agree, Mike. And you know, I how felt do you see through the bullshit to find the needle in a haystack? Which 
I'm hoping in our system you're a needle in the haystack, but how do we find people like you and save you? I I, I know exactly what you mean. And I've <coughs> since my ordeal, I've said it once and I'll say it again. I believe the Court of Appeals is just a rubber stamp of the trial court for a number of reasons, okay? Um, and it just, um, it's, you know, there are so many cases coming through the appeal, you know, appellate court and as well as the Supreme Court, but a lot of, um, a lot of times, you know, the facts, the true facts don't get in front of the right people to make the right decision. Sad to say, but that's true. There's, there's no real, I mean, Carl, uh, Judge Lincoln, do you have an, uh, you know, as a lawyer, I know how many briefs go through. I know I have lots of judge friends and I know how many, I mean, you probably have 1,500, 2,000 cases in front of you on your docket today. I mean, you know, is it advocacy? Is it, you know, what is it? Uh, I know that there were a lot of problems with Kenny's case along the way that should have been corrected and, and it was a perfect storm. But, you know, once you get to the Court of Appeals, how do you stand out? How do you, how do you take, you know, what is that? Is there a special magic bullet here that, that could have helped him uh, in, his, in the appellate practice, or is it a rubber stamp? Well, remember in Kenny's case, and this is true in so many cases because of the flood of cases, on the record that came up to the Court of Appeals, uh, because the right things were not argued, uh, it, it's probably theoretically a good decision. Yeah, you're affirming a conviction for an innocent man, but there's nothing in the record at that point that suggested he was an innocent man. Why? Because the DNA evidence was buried. What, by the way, one of the things Kenny didn't mention is that there was a belief that the affair partner that the victim in his case had earlier, I think that day, may have been a police officer. And so there was a a desire, I don't know if this is ever proven or established, but there was some desire to ba basically just bury the DNA evidence because they didn't want to embarrass anybody. Oh my and God. I don't know, I don't, I, as I said here today, I don't know if Linda Davis even knew that the wealth of evidence that was there was ever even disclosed to her because Tom Oston decided he was going to keep certain things secret. So when it comes up to the Court of Appeals, they are so far removed from the battle yeah. that the record they have is fairly sterile and empty about anything that they could do to reverse. Uh, as much as I know about Kenny's case, if I read the briefs that were presented, I probably would have affirmed because there, there was nothing there. <coughs> what you need is, is people who are willing to do the hard work in Innocence Project's uh, to uncover the evidence, the, the newly discovered evidence. And, but here's, here's the, where, where the Court of Appeals could, could, could take a lesson. Even newly discovered evidence is often just disregarded if it comes too late. I don't think anything should ever be disregarded because it comes too late. Justice is justice no matter when it comes. You should not have what's called a procedural default where, yeah, it might have had merit, but we're not going to look at it now because it could have been discovered earlier. That's nonsense. It wasn't discovered earlier. When it comes to light, act on it. Don't don't blame a person for not finding it at the proper time. Uh, I, yes, I mean that that is a, a really good point. I loved your comment in the Netflix series, Judge, about that 
uh, evidence in, in, in serious cases like this should be kept forever. And then you yeah. have these, you know, Republicans in Lansing arguing they don't have money to do that. But that's a different discussion. Um, you know, so this 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 Craig Gonzer, who who was the rapist. Um, um, I saw that Eric Smith, former prosecutor Eric Smith, said that the statute of limitations were gone, so he's never can never be charged for these crimes. Uh, and you said that did somebody say that he has confessed to this crime? Yeah, that, 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 that's my memory because the statute of limitations had run. There was no downside to him in, in admitting it, but it's uh, it's pretty clear that not only did the DNA match, but but I know he, he's admitted it. Okay. Right, Kenny? Yeah, and, uh, you know, we tried to, you know, I was, um, in addition to helping the exonerees, uh, you know, when they come out or, or actually work towards their freedom, I've been successful in having a couple of bills passed in Lansing. Um, one of I because we, I wanted Gonza to be charged, but at that time there was a seven-year statute limitation um, that lost. Now since been changed, there is no time limit on, on uh, rape now being charged with rape, and um, <clears throat> which is which is the fair thing. And the way Gonza got caught, it was so ironic. Um, you know, after studying the law for so many years, and I've learned so much about politics and and the criminal justice system. And I knew that there are thousands and thousands of unsolved cases with, you know, with evidence that has never been tested. So I, uh, I worked with Steve Bita and uh, Stephanie. Great guy. Yeah, he is. And uh, <laughs> yeah. Stephanie Chang, she was in the House, now she's in the Senate, you know, to um, have a law passed that would require anyone that's going to be released on parole to give a DNA sample, put it into the CODA system. Maybe we'll get lucky to get a hit, you know, to solve a crime. And uh, amazingly, that's how Ganser got caught. Um, the bill was passed in uh, 2006. He, Ganser was caught in 2008. And uh, the, the way he got caught, he was in prison. He was in jail up north. He's getting ready to be released. They gave the DNA swab, the buckle swab, bingo, they get a hit out of CODIS, comes to him. Did you say that you had something to do with that bill in 2006? Yes, yeah. Yeah, that's Kenny's that, bill. That's your bill? Yeah. yeah. I, you know, you I helped catch the guy that put that did this all Yeah, through? Yeah, that's true. I yeah, not, only, not only was Kenny an innocent man who got wrongfully convicted, but after he got out, he's responsible for catching a lot more guilty people. I mean, that that's how great this guy is. Does the story get any, I mean, I have to say better. I mean, I didn't, that Netflix series, I don't think picked up on that. No, there, uh, they, there's, um, there's a lot of, a lot more to be exposed on Netflix. I'll, I'll say that without uh, letting A lot more what did you say? I'm sorry. There's a lot more information, a lot more facts that will be released in the Netflix. Oh, is there, there's going to be more uh, follow-ups? Yeah. yeah. Well, um, I have a question about a follow-up, and and I mean this. I don't know if this is obvious, but uh, do you ever have a desire to meet the victim? Uh, you know, Mike, I've been asked that question a lot, and if the tables would have been reversed, I, if I was the victim, I would have made an effort to approach them. You know, my the or to the approach person. you. You think she oh, yeah. could have approached you? Yeah. And I, I would, but that's that's just my nature. You know, if I hurt somebody like that, I would apologize. 
Um, and you know, one other thing I wanted that you were talking but about. She has not reached out to you. None of her people no. have reached out to you. You know what? I'll tell you who who's apologized to me. First person was uh, Carl Marlingo. Okay. Um, again, when I remember I told, I mentioned earlier, I still believe most police officers are good. These are two true stories. Okay. I love to golf. I have two cars. I have a Jeep Grand Cherokee with a license plate that says "Innocent." I have a 2003 Chevy Corvette, which ironically was built on June 17th of 2003. That's the day I walked out of prison. Okay. I when I golf, I take my um, take my Grand Cherokee. First time this happened, I was golfing on Cher at Cherry Creek on 24 and Van Dyke. I was running late and. Uh, I was going down the Van Dyke E-way, and I looked in my side mirror, and there was a state police officer like coming up to my rear bumper, pulling back, C coming up, pulling back. And I thought, back then, I was I was scared to death of um, of some type of retaliation, you know. So this uh, trooper gets behind me, puts the lights on, pulls me over, okay, and he comes up to the car. I says, uh, "Well, is that you, Ken Wenemko?" I said, "Yes, I am." What, what did I do wrong? Because I didn't say you did anything wrong. And I said, well, why did you pull me over? He says, well, I, I, he noticed my plate and he ran it through the computer, wanted to know if it was me driving. He wanted to know if it was me driving the car, someone else. And uh, I said, well, well, what did I do wrong? He says, I, I told you, you didn't do anything wrong, but I want to ask you a question. Um, he says, uh, you know, sir, he asked me if I knew Sergeant Artis White, who's a, a police, a state police trooper in Lansing, black Jack, black gentleman. He's been filming documentaries about wrongful conviction. And I said, I, I know Artis, Artis and I are very good friends. And uh, he said, well, Artis had told him about my case. And this officer felt so bad for what happened to me. He said he wanted to take the time to shake my hand and apologize on behalf of the Michigan State Police Department for what happened to me. That's a good officer. That's a good yeah. human being. That's a beautiful story. And, and that happened two other times. And you know, when I when I when I meet people like that, or people like you guys here who are trying to get their word out, I get I want to, sometimes I want to sit down and cry. It gives me goose goosebumps because I know we're we're making a difference. We're getting out there and trying to make the world a better place. Yeah, and that's that's what it's all about. Yeah, the the, the story. Um, I mean, it's an it's an amazing story. I mean, I have so many more questions. We might have to do a part two, Kevin. Um, <laughs> you know, before I forget, because you know, I have a couple buddies who watch these podcasts and say, "Michael, you gotta." Even though you know the answers to these things, you still gotta ask. So, you know, I think this is this really boils down to really bad advocacy for you before the conviction. And one of the key things that the judge was talking about was the lineup. Judge, are people who are asked to go in a lineup, are they entitled to counsel before the lineup? You're entitled to a, yes, yes, you are. So if you say, before you put me in this lineup, I want to talk to counsel, the police are supposed to let you do that. Yes. Okay. I thought so too. The second thing is, I haven't been to law school since uh, a long time ago. Early uh, early nineties, late eighties, but I don't think the prosecutors um, really play a role in the lineup. Usually, I thought that was 
you know, that's kind of separated. They don't usually get the case till after. Is that your understanding, Judge, commonly? That's my, that's my understanding. And that's why I was so sure for years that Kenny was simply mistaken when he said that he saw Linda Davis at the lineup. It's right. not the protocol. It's not expected. They're not forbidden, but it's it's the same thing as saying, well, on a work day, uh, you can't uh, you can't go to to the circus. I mean, you, you can't make rules for every improbable event that might happen. But no, prosecuting attorneys are usually separate uh, from from the lineup. They do not appear. They do not go down. Uh, and that's why it was a surprise to me that uh, the assistant prosecutor was there. And, and kept her name off the paperwork, which definitely leads to yeah, yeah. That's 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 even more troubling. Yes. I mean, hey, Mike. That, that, go ahead. Mike, um, let me ask you. I don't know if you know this, not. Do you know the number one cause of wrongful convictions is eyewitness misidentification? You know how often that happens? Because if you don't, I'll tell you. If you look at all the exonerations around the country, okay. And I'll say this about that: when I was released, I was. In 03, I was the 129th person in the country released. We're over 20, about 2,600 now, okay? The number one cause of wrongful convictions is eyewitness misidentification. It's been proven wrong 78% of the time. 78%. Yes. Now, I want to, you know, I want to like to ask someone, if you have a doctor and you go see your doctor and he's wrong, he's wrong, he diagnoses your you're, what's wrong with you three out of four times? Are you going to find another doctor? No, and a, and a good defense attorney would have been able to pick it apart, all the things that, that Judge Marlinga brought up. And then, as a lawyer, I, I found fascinating, they brought in a lot of 404 evidence against you, which is habit evidence or that fetish evidence right. that I thought was nonsense. Um, they got your ex-girlfriend, who seemed like a peach, um, to, uh, to say, you know, to corroborate some of the things that the rapist Ganger, Ganger said to the victim, uh, that you said some of the same lines. And I think that the, the one juror that was interviewed did say that that helped, that that was the fetish evidence he said was key to the conviction. And they knew that because the eyewitness testimony plus the fetish testimony brings the circumstantial evidence up to a point of maybe reasonable doubt in these people's opinions. I, I agree. And the evidence that was presented under 404B by my ex-girlfriend, that what she said was not true. I, I swear in my life right now, I'm convinced that Austin or Linda Davis, someone from the prosecutor's office or police, you know, just like they did with McCormick, they gave him the police reports and told me, hey, look, you know, we haven't even talked about McCormick yet, which on essential casting that little scumbag. I mean, I, on essential casting. I know. It, as a um, snitch with that outfit, well, that red outfit with the things on it when he came in to give those interviews. I'm like, you couldn't have uh, of casting somebody better. Hey, Mike, uh, think about this for a minute, okay? If you look at all the players involved in my case, from Linda Davis, from the... Marlette, Austin, Ernst, Judge Schwartz, Markowski, the snitch, okay? If you look at all those people and consider all the facts in my case, the only person who did not commit a crime 
was me. And I, <laughs> I get I get sentenced to 40, 60 years, and the cops get promoted. Hey, wait a minute. I want to go back to something that Kevin said earlier. I mean, well, I think that this is a perfect storm that explains a lot of it. Don't get me wrong. There was criminality. There is a felony. Tom Ostin is clearly guilty of a felony. It appears that uh, maybe Linda Davis uh, was not involved in actually showing the 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 the, the police file to uh, McCormick, who was the jailhouse snitch. But it is absolutely clear that in order to get the information that McCormick used to testify against Kenny, he had to get it from the police reports. He said he got it from the police reports. And the person who gave it to him, according to McCormick's testimony, was Tom Oston. And that is clearly subornation of perjury, obstruction of justice. And if Oston were still alive today, he would be or he should be in prison because that is definitely a crime. I and mean, we're not talking mistake over there. When you give a, a witness uh, the information so that the witness can testify falsely, you are committing a hardball felony. And, and that goes beyond my perfect storm explanation of things. Yeah. Uh, that that's that that's 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 criminality of the highest order. It is. But how do you get around judge not blaming Judge uh, Davis um, when and I, and I don't know what you can believe out of McCormick's mouth. OK, when you got a, such a liar there. But he said that she came in and was turning on and off the tape recorder. And, and yeah, okay, she was but, the one saying these things. Yeah. But 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 remember, remember, he he doesn't say that Linda remained in the room when um, Tom Ostin gave him the material. And Linda was cleared by a group of prosecutors out of St. Clair who did an investigation after the fact. And that's why I'm assuming that their investigation was done in good faith. And, and had they found any corroborating evidence that Linda was actually in the room when Ostin was speeding the perjury, uh, then she would be guilty of something. But but uh, she wasn't, according to what McCormick himself said. She was only there to turn on the tape recorder on and off. Um, it's still a bad procedure, but, but, but there's no direct testimony from McCormick that, that she was in the room when Ostin was feeding the information uh, to, to McCormick. And to this day, Davis has not taken any responsibility. She's not apologized. She, she said, I think she said something like, did she say she, she felt bad. bad? She felt bad. She lost sleep. She thought it was a terrible injustice. But as she looks back at it, she was satisfied that there was so much circumstantial evidence against Mr. Winemco that her conscience is clear. And, you know, and there you have, Ken, two completely different egos or two, you know, between Judge Marlinga and hers, you know, who can apologize. She can't just, you know, God forbid she apologizes. God forbid, you know. It's she really has an interesting. Uh, it's really interesting to me. Go she ahead. has, you know, she has no conscience, in, in my opinion. And, um, you know, getting back to the um, <clears throat> when I made the statement that it, if you look at all the players, the only person that didn't commit a crime was me. Okay, and that's really that's a fact. I'm not I'm not trying to be a smartest. That's a fact. If you look at the big picture, but one of the points that I've stressed every time I have an opportunity to speak out. Is you know what what can be done to stop these wrongful convictions from happening? And to me, the issue of immunity for police officers, some prosecutors, always bugs me. 
okay? And I know in my, during my civil suit, uh, Olsen's attorney, uh, Roger Smith was his name, had, you know, wanted to have the lawsuit tossed under the immunity issue. And thankfully, Judge Zatkoff had the courage to say, not, no, there's too much wrong here. You know? um, so I think one serious issue that everyone needs to look at in order to stop these wrongful convictions is, you know, if you have a prosecutor, a judge, a police officer, an attorney who takes an oath to uphold the law and they deliver, they break the law, okay, there has to be consequences. They have to, you know, they should be, in my opinion, and 2,500 of my fellow exonerees around the country agree, they should be charged with crimes. If a crime was committed, they should be charged with a crime. If they're convicted, you know, go to prison, well, that's that's because that's on them. And I guarantee you, Mike and Carl and Kevin, you get one or two opportunities where that happens, where a prosecutor are, you know, found to be guilty of withholding evidence or suborning perjury, you put them away, the rest of the prosecutors around the country will get the message just like that. That's what I believe. So, you know, before I ask you what you're doing now and, and, and who you're helping, I have two lingering questions in my head about that underlying trial, because I keep going back to it as a lawyer that, you know, had you had a proper lawyer, criminal defense lawyer, um, so much of this could have been avoided. Did you testify at your own trial? Yes, I did. Against the wishes of Mr. Markowski. You he insisted told, on testifying. Yeah, I remember just very distinctly, uh, Mike, Markowski told me that if I get on the stand, Linda Davis is going to rip me to shreds. And I said, I, how can she rip me to shreds? I haven't done anything wrong, number one. And now I'm not going to sit here and listen to, like, the snitch, for example, <coughs> tell lies about me. Okay. And at, um, but that's what happened. I did okay, testify. So, so you did testify. And did you know that? Did you know the snitch? Do you remember him from prison? He was in the, from the, from the county jail. He was in a unit next to mine. I, okay. I was a 6A. He was a 6B, I think it was, in Macomb County Jail. Okay. So I, I didn't know. So you, you do remember him. And how many days long was your was this uh, jury trial? We start out, um, we started on uh, Monday. I remember it was the day before election day. No, week before election day. Uh, I think it was the five days. We came back. The jury came back, ironically, um, November 9th, 1994, which was my dad's birthday. And, okay. um, so it was a quick, I just wanted to point out for like Kevin to say, I mean, how quick this was. That whole weekend thing is so crazy. There are so many crazy things about your case. And then we haven't even talked about the free press who really got the ball rolling for you, who showed some interest, who wrote the stories, who, who got this. Um, you know, without the free press writer, what's her name? Kim, Kim North Shine. Yeah, Kim, Kim Shine, yeah. yeah. Kim Shine, yeah. you would, I mean, this wouldn't have come to light. I, I agree. And, you know, all along I've said um, I've had three angels help prove my innocence and get me back on my feet. That's Kim Shine from the free press. She broke the story. And I remember I wrote to her. I think I wrote to every uh, report in the Tri-County area. And I wrote to shows like Dateline in 2020. Uh, looking for Lifeline, I wrote and I wrote to Barry Sheck, you know, and 
I remember Kim, Kim, uh, um, I, she answered me, she sent a letter to me, wanted, wanted to know if she'd come down and meet me in, in person. And I said, yeah, as long as you have to get cleared by the MDOC, you know, and that's then about a week later, Kathy Swedlow, who then was the co-director of the Innocence Project at Cooley, and Gail Pamikoff, who's one of the best attorneys I've ever met and a, and a great, great woman. Amen. Uh, they, you know, they, uh, th those are my three angels and I can, I can never pay them back for, for their kindness. They, you know, they, sh they showed towards me. Great. You think that you think that you'd get out, Kenny, and you'd just be on a revenge tour to get back at everybody. But instead, you spend all your time working uh, to help other wrongfully convicted people, to help other uh, exonerees get on their feet when they get out. I, it, it's amazing that you're able to do that, and, and, and thank you for doing that. Well, it, you know, uh, thank you, uh, Kevin. It's, you know, a lot of people ask me, you know, why aren't you mad? Why aren't you, you know, why aren't you just pissed off? And I had the same answer. You know, if you allow yourself to get to be angry or upset, you're gonna, you, you can't think the right way. I knew all those every day when I was locked up, the, the time was going to come. I didn't think it was going to take almost 10 years for me to you know come home. But I knew what I wanted to do. Because what happened to me, I don't want anything that happened to me to happen to another innocent man or woman. And, uh, you know, that reminds me of another thing I always wanted to bring up. When when you have an innocent person in prison, now instead of one victim, you have two, okay? So the, the problem doubles. But here's one thing that no one has ever brought up, and I can't understand why. If I was Diane Klug, okay, I, and uh, her testimony sent an innocent man to prison, and let's say based on something that either uh, Austin, one of the detectives, or, or Linda Davis may have told her on false information or not turning over all, all the information, exculpatory. Why, you know, why is the victim question, get angry at the police or prosecutor and ask them, hey, why, did you, why didn't you tell me you had this evidence and it wasn't tested? That, you, know, do, you understand the point that I'm trying to make? Yep. Yeah. You know, yeah, an innocent person gets convicted and a guilty person gets away. Sure, sure. And uh, we don't know what she did. She, she, I assume she hasn't given many interviews, if any. Uh, but that would be a, an interesting thing to talk to her about. Um, I hear what you're saying. I, I hear what you're saying. Judge, I want to ask you a question. At the beginning of this broadcast, I brought up the Innocence Project that uh, is run through Wayne County Prosecutor's Office. Are you familiar with it? Yes, a lot of prosecutors' offices are now doing a public integrity unit or some other name where they have assistant prosecutors in the office who are dedicated to reviewing files to find out, even before somebody else does, if there was something wrong with the conviction. Anything like that going on in Macomb? It hasn't up till now, but um, as you know, um, the judges just today appointed Gene Cloud as the interim prosecutor to serve until December 31st of, uh, of this year. She will then be replaced by the elected prosecutor. And I know that uh, Gene Cloud is very much interested in having a conviction integrity unit like that. Um, and I believe that all of the candidates who are now running for the job 
um, would be committed to to do the same. I guess I haven't talked to each one of them, but I suspect that uh, that's going to be inaugurated now in Macomb County. Yes. Interesting. I, I think uh, obviously I think it's needed. I I, I think that uh, you know no there is no quick solution for this, and I keep going back as the as the trial lawyer that I am to the trial to the preparation, um, and because obviously that's where it should have stopped. That's where the madness should have stopped. And someone who doesn't have a lot of means, doesn't have a lot of money, doesn't know the legal system, you didn't know how to stop it. You were trusting your lawyer and he failed you. And you didn't have, you didn't know what to do. I gotta say this for, for the lawyer, for Mr. Markowski, remember, this is 1994, times were different. He, he, he only had three days to prepare. That's obviously not enough. The trial judge was blockheaded enough to insist on that. That's bad. But had Mr. Markowski taken an appeal to the Court of Appeals in those days, I, I suspect that the answer would have been to deny the request for any adjournment. Because in those days, in the mid-90s, um, the, the, the general tenor of the system was so oriented towards uh, securing convictions and making sure that we have finality on the part of victims. It was just a common way that things were talked about. And delays were always looked at as, as a trick of the defendant. And, and I'm not so sure that the Court of Appeals would have done anything had there been an appeal from, uh, well, although even as I say that, I keep, I believe what I just said, but I'm still stunned by thinking that somebody thought that three days was sufficient time right. to prepare for a capital case. That's right. I, it, listen, it's, it's, easy, it, it's easy to Monday morning quarterback this. Yeah. I hear what you're yeah. saying. You're right. Yeah. You're right. 25, 30 years more later, um, I hear what you're saying. Listen, there was no internet back then. There was no computers. There was no way to file fast appeals. You're right. Um, tough on crime. Tough on crime. Tough yeah, on crime. I mean, it, it's right. Yep. You know, I, I'm I'm thinking, you know, if this happened today, uh, somebody sitting in a courtroom with a court appointed lawyer making who, who don't make a lot of money and have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of cases and who want their clients to plead guilty. Um, you know what? I, I assume today, you know, because you don't you didn't have the integrity units back then. You didn't have the innocent projects back then. Um, DNA evidence was just getting started. So. It's but by by these type of podcasts and by by people speaking up and by these innocence files TV shows, I, I hope that that things are starting to change. Um, and and Ken, what kind of advice do you have for people? And what kind of things are you doing? And what needs to be done? What are what are uh, resources that people are looking for if they want to help um, that they can do right now? Well, you know the. Um I think the first thing that anyone can do is realize, take the time to realize and understand how often these wrongful convictions happen. They do happen. They happen every day. You know, I can remember a few years ago, I was speaking at um, Michigan State, maybe eight or nine years ago with uh, Norm Fell, who was the founder of the Michigan uh, Innocence Project. And back then, an innocent person, man or woman, black or white, I don't care, they, they were being released once one person was was being released every 16 days now since you know we have a lot more advocacy around the country a lot more people have came on board and 
now instead of one 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 person every 16 days it's a proven fact look around the country check it out on innocentproject.org an innocent person is coming home every other day there's four a week now that's a big jump from one to you know one every 16 days to four a week and it's still it's still a, uh, a small percentage i believe you know that number is going to grow and grow but the first thing people have to do is they have to understand take the time to understand hey we have a serious problem in our criminal justice system and it can be fixed okay and then you have to have the heart you know and and the guts sometimes to to stand up you know and speak out if you know you're right if i know i'm right it probably comes from my days playing hockey you know if i uh one of my teammates would would have a problem with you know um getting cautious or something i i would always come out and uh do it. i'd say hello to the person who hit him <laughs> but um you have to have that willingness and um and dedication and i hope more and more people do because once like myself i couldn't be happier doing any other thing right now because i know i'm making i'm making a difference in the world i try to make the world a better place for everybody so all, all good points and i think i might have misspoke now the book that's on the poster behind you over your right shoulder did you write that book i wrote it with a friend of mine bob hennigy who i've known since uh 1965 our freshman year in high school at st lanisau's high school in hamtramck uh bob's like a brother to me and uh you know when i had a couple offers from respected names that people wanted to write a story about a book about the story and this may sound goofy to you, Mike, um, or to Carl, but I, I've read so many books that by, written by other exonerees that, in my opinion, had too much legalese, you know, and I didn't want people to have a law degree to understand what happened to me, okay? So I that's why I chose Bob, and okay. I'm, I'm glad that I did, and and uh, we had our publisher, Terry Jemba, who... We all went to high school together. Okay, I often refer to us as the three Pollocks of Mantramit. Uh, um, you know, we got together. It's like a like a God answered our prayers. We're here. You know, this, this happened for a reason, and that reason is to make you know make the world a better place and ref and really reform seriously reform our criminal justice system and wake up the people. Take the blinders off people. You know, wake up. We have a problem. You can help. So people could buy your book on Amazon and other outlets, I assume. It's on Amazon, and the website for the book is deliberateinjusticethebook.com. Deliberateinjusticethebook.com. Um, yeah, you have the Netflix, and you have the Netflix series going. I have the Netflix series, series going. Um, the Million Dollar Man is a nine-episode series. Mine is episode number nine. And a couple of weeks ago, I did an interview for with the Young Turks, um, Sarah Dowland, who was the producer, uh, you know, who made the, was the producer for the Netflix uh, documentary. Uh, we did an interview, a very, very informative interview, and it kind of expands the Netflix documentary a little bit more. It's a great, you know, great interview. And if anyone would like to see that, you can just Google, it's on YouTube, the Young Turks, Ken Wynemko, Sarah Dowland. Any 
any questions that we didn't ask you that you any information about your case that, that you haven't shared yet uh, publicly that you want to anything else that we need to know um yeah you know um there is one thing i'd like to mention that goes back to the michigan's wrongful compensation bill okay now i had um i fought for to have several bills passed and i'm fortunate to be successful in that and one was to have the dna timeline taken off because when that law first came into effect in 2001 inmates were only given five-year uh, period to test for dna for, to apply for DNA testing, you know, to prove their innocence. And when I got out, I thought, man, that makes no sense to me. And I'll do what I have to do to get, get those time limits taken off. So we had the two extensions that goes back to when governor Granholm was, was in office. And, uh, you know, finally got to the point I was talking as a matter of fact, Steve Bita and I went to talk to Granholm. We were talking in our office. I said, you know, the governor, I, you know, I'm busy enough as it is work trying to read cases and, you know, help uh, Bill Proctor with, you know, read the files and get police reports. I said, you know, I don't want to come up here every two or three years to get it, you know, to uh, have this thing, the time, a two or three year time extension, take the time limits off permanently. Okay. Which it took me eight years to, to get that done. Okay. And the wrongful compensation bill, believe it or not, uh, Mike and Kevin took 13 years for me to pass 13 years and it's fucking ridiculous and back you know when i first got out this is a fact if someone was in prison for a crime that they did commit and they're released on parole the state would help them get house housing food stamps clothing uh, job training okay give them money for a bus you know a bus ride home whatever however if you were uh, someone like myself, my fellow exonerees in Michigan, totally innocent and released from prison. You don't get, you didn't get a penny. And to me, that 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 just made absolutely no sense at all. So, you know, we were fighting and fighting. To, like as I said, as I said, as I said, it took 13 years to get the law passed. Uh, Snyder signed it. One of the reasons. What does the law say? Tell me. What's the? Is there a cap on the year? Tell me. I. Is the, the, yeah, the, the um, it's now we're entitled to receive $50,000 a year for every year that you were wrongfully imprisoned. Okay. But here's the catch if someone receives money in through a federal civil suit, the state doesn't want to pay you any money. That's clear. Or if you, like in my case, I settled, I in my case was settled, everybody knows I get. I settled my case with $3.7 million. Bill Schutte, when he was still the attorney general, says, I'm not entitled to anything. Okay. And what he wanted to do, uh, every time a Senator Beat and Stephanie Chang and, and Pete Lacido, and we come to agreement on language, Schutte would stick his nose in, try to take some of the language that was agreed to out, put his own language in. Okay. And it got to the point where I told Steve Beat, I said, you know, I want to meet this guy face to face. I'm tired of coming up here and argue, you know, just rehashing this whole thing 13 years. So we had a meeting in, in, in Steve's office. Uh, Kathy Swaldana, myself, Norm Fell, and uh, Shooty walked in with one of his aides. And uh, he said, uh, uh, So what's the problem, Kenny? I said, You know, with all due respect, Mr. Shooty, 
you know, I'm tired. I, I've got so much work on my plate, you know, investing, looking at these cases. I don't want to keep coming up here and, you know, have, have the rehash in the language, okay? I said, it's your job. You can't, I said, you're, you're the attorney general with all due respect. It's the way the, the law works in Michigan, according to the Constitution, it's the job of the House and the Senate. They pass the laws. The governor signs the laws. It's your job as attorney general to enforce the laws. You can't write the laws and enforce them at the same time. It's like being a cop, judge, and jury all in one. So Shooty looks at me and he says, Kenny, he says, don't tell me how to do my job. And I said, again, with all due respect, I'm not trying to tell you how to do your job because the Michigan Constitution already spells out what your job duties are. Okay. Plain and simple. So uh, he said, then Shooty says, he says, you know, Kenny, he says, I heard a lot of good things about you. He knew that I studied the law, you know, for almost 10 years when I was locked up. And I, I know criminal law. Okay. He says, but maybe, maybe you better go back and read your law books a little bit more. And I was, you know, I, I got so pissed at that point, uh, uh, Mike and Kevin. You know, I thought for a minute, I said, you know what? I said, I, I will do that. I'll, I'll do that if you do one thing for me. He said, what can I do for you? I said, why don't you go fuck yourself? <laughs> and and when I, when, you know what? When I, when I said that, you could have heard a pin drop in, in Peter's office. And he had, he got, I thought he was never heard of that. He, his face got as red as a tomato. He said, you can't talk to me that way. I can, I can have you arrested. And I put my wrist out like this. Said, wait, wait, wait. He said that? Yeah. And I, I put my wrist out in front of him. I said, Mr. Shooter, you want to put the cuss on me? Go ahead. Because if you do, you look dumber than you, than you look right now. Oh, and Jesus. He, got, he got so pissed off. He and his aide walked out of, out of Steve's office and they slammed the door in. Everybody started laughing. In, in the office, I said, I said, "What's so funny?" You know, and uh, I don't know if it was Norm or uh, Stephanie. They said, "Kenny, you just told him what we all been wanting to tell him for the last five years." I said, "Well, <laughs> if you know that you're right, stand up and speak out. That's the only way something is going to be done." You know. So the law. Um, I know I had spoken to uh, um, Whitmer and uh, and uh, Dana uh, Nestle. Prior to their elections, I knew them when they were both in the House and the Senate, and they always backed me in my efforts to get the you know the comp bill passed. But that um, that uh, part that um, um, you know we can't state doesn't want to pay. Um, let's say let's say for example, use my case: ten years, fifty thousand, five hundred thousand dollars. Okay, and then next month I settle a federal lawsuit. Well, under the current law, the state wants you me to pay that five hundred thousand dollars back to the yeah. back to the state. You know, and what kind of sense does that make? That's that's like the state saying, "Yeah, okay, here's your five hundred thousand dollars, Kenny. Uh, we, we made a mistake, but now that you got five three point seven million dollars, now we want our money back." Does that make any sense to any of you guys? Does it make no, any sense? sense. No. Not you spend the day locked up. <laughs> you know, no, no, it and, doesn't make sense, and it. And it's clear to get that. Keep fighting to get that changed. I, I will. I will. And that that is clear cut discrimination to me. And, you know, another thing that was bothering me, like when for the first four or five years that Beat and I, you know, Steve worked together. Um, the it was uh, the, the amount went from 40,000, went maybe to uh, 80,000. It came out 60,000. We agreed on a 50,000. OK, but 
it didn't include any lost wages. Okay. So let's say somebody's making $40,000 a year. Okay. When they get arrested, they're gone for 10 years. They get 50,000. They're still out. You know, the, you can, you can do the math, you know, so it still, it still costs them $400,000. It doesn't make any, it doesn't make any sense. It makes no sense whatsoever. And there are states, um, and surprisingly, Texas is, was the first state to do this. Uh, they, uh, and this, Texas is the number one state for wrongful, wrongful convictions, okay? But they have a good guy down there, Senator, Senator Rodney Ellis, who is, he's determined as I am, you know, to get the, you know, the people that have been hurt so much, get them their compensation. And, uh, but they, now they're, Texas is giving $80,000 a year. It's going to be raised to 100000 a year. Um, plus lost wages. It's only common sense. Okay. And uh, they have it on, on the federal side, thanks to Kirk Bloodsworth, who Kirk was the former Marine Purple Heart. Uh, first person that was on death row to be freed by DNA. He's a good for, very good friend of mine. Um, he worked with Senator Leahy on the federal side. Um, he get compensation for the, if, you know, if you could wrongfully convicted in the federal court, you get $100,000 per year. But uh, you know, no amount of uh, no amount of money can ever bring my my dad back. And this whole I've said this from day one. This whole ordeal took a bigger toll on my dad, and than it did on me. And I can remember the the last time I saw him, uh, he came. Him and my mom came to see me, and I could see he was going down. You know, I said, "Dad, just hang on, please hang on." My dad was a vet, proud veteran. He served in the Pacific. And then served in the Navy in the Pacific during World War II, defending our freedoms. And the last time I saw him, he started crying. I said, what's the matter, Dad? And he said, you know, Kenny, I don't I don't understand. He, when the bell, you know, World War II broke out, he answered the bell. He defended our country, defended our freedoms here. And now one of our own people is trying to, um, you know, keep my his, his son in prison. I said, Dad, just keep praying. Keep praying. It's going to work out. And uh, unfortunately, he passed away on Memorial Day of 2000, and I was not allowed to go to this funeral. But that, and again, as I said, this whole ordeal, in my opinion, killed him. All the stress. And, you know, my, my mom, you know, she, you know, they were, they're good people. They go play bingo. My mom played bingo every Thursday, every Friday night. Uh, my mom and dad go to the KSC dancing, you know, uh, doing the polka. They love to do the polka. After I got arrested, they were they were afraid to go anywhere. They're too embarrassed. And uh, that, uh, and I'm sure you guys can feel or understand what I what I'm trying to say, as well as all your listeners, uh, Mike. That's these wrongful convictions just have to stop. They have to, yeah. and we're going to yeah. get there. We'll get there. You know, I think people like you who are advocating and standing up for the truth and, and traveling the world and country and, and talking to law schools and with with good judges like uh, Judge Marlinga here, um, you know, not being shy about the miscarriages of justice and the unconstitutional things that, that went on in your case and other cases. It's just we just got to keep talking about it, and, um, you know, there's nothing – that I can say, I, 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 all I can say is thank you for sharing your story. I am so sorry this happened to you. I'm so happy that it's been almost 17, 18 years 
uh, that you've been able to be with your kids and grandkids and and um, and that that justice did prevail um, it's just it's such a fascinating heartbreaking uh, amazing story that uh, I think teaches us a lot and teaches lawyers like myself teaches people who could be on a jury like Kevin teaches judges uh, things to look out for just because you know when somebody says they're innocent wow maybe they really are innocent and and what a strange thought that is um, and that you just can't take it as a blanket that everybody says this because one out of I don't know how many but one out of a lot is really innocent and in the fact that there are dozens and dozens a year coming you know getting fixed you know we have to really pay attention so um, please keep in touch Please let us know what's going on, any way we can support you, any way we can get the word out about fundraisers, about events that you're speaking at, anything that we can do, um, I'd love to be able to help you. Michael, thank you so much. You and Kevin, you know, I, the only way this problem is going to be solved, solved rather, is if we do get the word out. And I thank both of you for the opportunity to, you know, to tell more people, tell more people. And Carol, I don't... You know, it's always a pleasure to appear with you, Carl. You're you're my brother. You're my family. All good people, and thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, Judge Marlinga, thank you so much for two hours of your time. I know you're busy. Keep up the good work in Macomb County, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Excellent. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Bye, everybody. Thank you, guys. Thanks. Talk soon. Thank you for watching another episode of Open Mic with Ken Wynemko and Judge Carl Marlinga and, of course, Kevin Dietz. What a fascinating conversation that was, Kevin, almost two hours long, um, a story that uh, it's made for the movies. You just can't you can't fathom all the little things that went wrong along the way in that path and him sitting in prison trying to get to the law library to try and figure out how to get out and nobody helping him and all of that nonsense would have gone uh, unknown. Uh, and, and when you hear a story like this, don't you want to go back and look at some of the other cases that prosecutor had, some of the other cases that the police officer had? It really just makes me wonder, you know, uh, you know, how, how often this happens. It's it's. I, I want to do all of those things. I don't think I'll ever have time to do all of those things. <laughs> but if you like this episode, please share it with somebody who you think would like it. Please subscribe. Please tell your friends about Open Mic so we can keep producing this great content for you because I think it's needed out there. Bringing the light to these types of stories is so important, and we're going to continue to do that. So thanks for uh, staying tuned for so long. Uh, we appreciate we appreciate you watching and listening. So, thank you again. Have a great day. You never know who you're going to see. Be one guy one on one my whole career. What you're going to hear. I've got a lot of desperate people in the city. On my podcast, Open Mic. Find it where you find your podcasts.